Dear friends, welcome to another edition of Forum 2000 online chats. My name is Ladislav Garashi, and I am a political geographer based in Prague. We are delighted to have with us Mr. Fonte Akum. Welcome, Fonte. Thank you for having me, Ladislav. How are you today? Thank you. Very fine. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Dr. Fonte Akum is uh, the executive director of the respected Institute for Security Studies headquartered in Pretoria, South Africa, which has its presence uh, also in other African metropolises like Dakar in Western Africa or Nairobi and Addis Ababa in Eastern Africa with researchers all over Africa. Uh, previously, his research covered violence governance and human security in the Lake Chad region. Our main focus today will be democracy and power competition in Africa. So let me introduce my first question. Some uh, 20 to 30 years ago, after the end of the Cold War, uh, we in Europe were amazed with the huge wave of democratization and multi-party rule in Africa. However, nowadays, Africa does not seem for us like a home of a really flourishing democracy in some aspects. Even if we uh, have had successful transitions of power like Ghana, Senegal, Zambia or Morocco, and even recent democratic revolutions in Sudan and Algeria, democracy uh, often runs in trouble, like in Sudan, where uh, we had a military coup uh, just a couple of days ago, or in Malawi, where the Constitutional Court uh, had to annul the election of the incumbent president, or in Zambia, uh, where the lead, uh, then leader of the opposition was charged for treason and jailed. Uh, despite official multi-party democracy, Many countries like Cameroon, Uganda or Angola slid to authoritarianism. Even Ethiopia and Tunisia, which had very good prospects for democracy two or three years ago, seem to be failing to stay on this path. So, Fonte, uh, what are the prospects for democracy in Africa? Um, thanks very much, Ladislav, for that question, which actually paints a broad picture of democratization in Africa. However, I think it's useful to look at the historical arc of democracy in Africa from independence. A lot of independence struggles in Africa were led by multi-party elections with one party defeating the other to come to power. However, in the process of political consolidation in a lot of um, post-independence Africa, we moved towards a monolithic system where the party and the state almost united to drive a development-driven agenda on the continent. And so, in the 1990s, democratization made a comeback. Um, and that's on the, on, on, on the back of sort of the rebirth of liberal democracy on the continent. However, important to understand democratization on the continent would be to deconstruct the various components that make up a democratic process. The first of which is political parties. The second is um, the nature of the state and constitutions, which create the playing field on which political parties operate. The third is understanding the role of civil society organizations on the continent. And all of these three components remain very much in formation, in constitution on the continent. 
And so in spaces where you have seen and you continue to see the rollback of democratization, it takes place with ruling parties and governments, in fact, co-opting the same instruments that ought to be promoting democracy. So you find situations where certain political parties align with the ruling party in order to form a presidential majority that perpetuates a specific group of elite governing over a long period of time. You also find certain civil society organizations aligning with the governing elite in, or in exchange for different forms of patronage as well. And of course, we have seen the manipulation of constitutions and the changing of constitutions in certain countries to be tailored to the desires and the needs of presidents in power. And um, without naming any names, so to speak, um, these are dynamics which continue to challenge the democratic arc on the continent. However, um, if we look to the brighter side, the bigger countries on the continent, like Nigeria, have seen an end to coups and the deepening of democratization. And we will be looking to the elections in 2024 in Nigeria as well to see exactly the outcomes of those elections and see how democracy gets advanced. Look to the DRC, for example, where there was a peaceful transfer of power um, a couple of years ago. Future elections in the DRC would portend um, what we would see. The bigger challenge, I think, at the end of the day is ensuring that the transitions from authoritarianism to democracy are sustainable on the continent. And for those to be sustainable, we need to develop a culture within which political parties are not personalized, but actually ruled by norms and platforms which respond to the needs of citizens. And the second aspect would be to de-regionalize political parties, because in a lot of places, political parties still remain entrenched within specific ethnic or identity groups rather than a national agenda. And that would need to be um, bolstered as well. And finally, civil society organizations have a firm role to play in the consolidation of democracy on the continent by standing as outside forces to hold those in power accountable. Uh, as mentioned, uh, these uh, uh, parties that uh, don't represent uh, national agendas and uh, uh, there, uh, there are few, very few sustainable transitions. How do you, how do you see how can be uh, those uh, aims, uh, uh, those objectives achieved, which you mentioned? Well, I mean, the objectives um, can be achieved by centralizing the exact political problems that African states face, um, and finding ways in which the approach to addressing those problems breaks out of ethnic and identity silos. Um, if the problem is inequality, for example, and the political party was going to address it, what are the platforms and the ways in which, what kind of political agenda would address the question of inequality without necessarily resorting to rather perpetuating horizontal inequalities by pitting one identity group against another? So there's a question of how we form political platforms. The second issue we need to look at is disentangling political parties, governing political parties from the machinery of state. Now, that's a very complex thing because it actually levels the playing field to the disadvantage of those in power. But disentangling party from state 
would allow a lot of the electoral management processes to be independent enough to be able to serve as an arbiter of the political parties that exist and would deprive ruling parties of the finances of the state to drive incumbency. The third thing that would need to happen would be beyond just separating party from state, would be to create party alliances which respond to the political needs of um, citizens and ensure that citizen participation in political processes is key and civic education would play a big role in this as well. So the service of the nation should come before the service to party, for example. And this comes through civil and civic education that takes the party out of the state and puts the state at the center of service on the continent. Thank you very much. Uh, I would have another question, another topic. Uh, recently, we have seen that Africa is becoming a home for a new uh, competition of powers, especially the authoritarian regimes of the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, Qatar, Turkey, and so on, uh, building extensive military and business presence in the continent. Uh, these powers are deeply involved in the conflict, for example, between the federal and state government uh, go governments in uh, Somalia, uh, between uh, Tripoli and uh, Tobruk-based power in Libya, but also in other countries like Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, and so on. So, Fonte, uh, how do you see the pros and cons of such power competition in Africa uh, and uh, influence on its uh, stability and prosperity? Um, I think we would need to demystify a power competition on the continent and look at power competition as a global play for natural resources to control supply chains and to have competitive advantage on the political global political arena. And there are different ways in which states act to be able to project power, project influence, and they do that in Africa as well. Um, if you flip the script, you would try to understand exactly how Africa could better position itself in engagement with multiple orders. What does Africa bring to the international scene so Africa can set its own agenda and not become an object of others' instrumentalization? That is what we are more focused on. Um, countries would want to project power in different ways, whether through the use of mercenaries, the use of contracts, the use of relations between with elites, or even the use of concessionary loans. Um, however, if governments in Africa serve at the behest of their citizens, and if they are held accountable, then the deals that they strike with different global powers would be based on a mandate received from the African citizens and therefore would be legitimate and protect the interest of the African citizens. So it's about working on the governance architecture within African states that allows lines of legitimacy, accountability, and representation to be completely clear so that the leaders make decisions in the service of the people rather than in the service of protecting their power base which is what a lot of the power competition um, comes down to. Uh, and uh, I would ask you something that is uh, a concern for probably uh, many people in Europe, uh, that uh, 
Candy attempts to imitate uh, these uh, successful economic powers, uh, power models, be followed by introduction of their authoritarian political models in Africa? Well, um, if you look at things the way they are, some of the most popular um, leaders um, are actually authoritarian, right? There is a tendency to look at some, some popular leaders are authoritarian. And the tendency is to look at the success stories in authoritarian spaces and envy those successes. However, not many people pay attention to the plight of citizens who are repressed in spaces where authoritarianism thrives. Um, so if you focus on the plight of citizens where authoritarianism thrives, there is really not much to envy of authoritarian um, powers. The second is there's really not much to envy of a situation where the private sector equally would be beholden to a specific cabal of individuals, right? And does not allow for the diversification of economies and the growth of capital. Because in fact, that growth of capital, loosening the reins on growth of capital serves the greater good of the greatest number rather than limiting it. So I think um, there are ways in which it's rather easy to envy countries within which authoritarianism thrives. But if you look across the continent, um, countries like Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, um, might have their growing pains, but citizens in this country certainly can hold their governments accountable and deprive themselves of that. Thank you very much. Uh, at the end of our uh, interview, uh, I would like to ask you on some uh, questions uh, on uh, the conflicts that are uh, ongoing currently or recently. Uh, I would like to ask you, how, can, how do you see the uh, future of uh, the current uh, Tigray conflict in uh, Ethiopia? And uh, how do you see uh, the... Uh, possible outcomes of uh, the military coup in Sudan? You know, um, if I pulled out my crystal ball <laughs> um, in an age of uncertainty, I'll be able to speak with a great deal of certainty about the potential outcomes. Look, what we understand about the situation in the Tigray region at the moment is that we have hit sort of a hurting stalemate. Um, a space where um, there is a humanitarian crisis that has been acknowledged by all parties involved. There equally um, is a situation where um, the federal government um, is having a hard time gaining control of the Tigray region. And the Tigray region is um, having a hard time actually pushing the federal government completely out. So standing on zero-sum position about the potential outcomes of the current crisis is not serving anyone well and it actually is hurting the population and it would be useful for all of the parties involved um, to come uh, to a place where they can actually sit around the table and agree to disagree on some issues but get to consensus on the nature of the state in Ethiopia get to a consensus about the distribution of powers between the federal government and the states, and get to consensus about how the, go the governance arrangement that would let this arrangement to work. Um, in Sudan, um, of course, we are seeing um, 
the African Union um, expelling Sudan from the continental body. Um, we have also seen a number of um, withdrawals of existing aid packages from the EU, from the United States. Um, we are seeing Sudanese people, citizens on the streets um, making a clear stand against a coup. Um, there are many ways in which this could play out. Um, you know that um, Sudan under Bashir basically found a way to exist as an insular state. Would Sudan want to go down that path again? I'm not sure. But often, um, when military leaders um, seize power, um, they have different calculations from civilian leaders, for example. So anything could happen, and these are very early days on Sudan. Fonte, thank you for all your insights and comments. And uh, I really appreciate your time with us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ladislav. And um, I love political geography. And so it's been a pleasure exchanging with you today. It was a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you.